Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Would you stand? Let's read the word together this morning. We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bible, verse 19. Can you read this with me? It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And this morning we're going to be talking about talking to God, the pathway into his presence. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, our hearts are open today. We sense your presence here in this place. We're so grateful for your goodness towards us. So we ask you to speak to us through your word this morning. God, illuminate what we haven't seen before. Bring freedom. Spark fresh faith in our hearts. Encouragement. Fresh joy. Fresh energy. Fresh passion for your presence. Father, transform us. Change us as we look into your word. We want to know you. In Jesus' name. Church said? Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. I don't know how many of you were anything like me as a teenager, but I journaled a lot as a teenager, and I had a big list of all kinds of things that I wanted in a spouse, right? Everything, I, and I don't remember the details of this list. It's been a long time, but I think everything from like the color of hair to personality, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, I don't remember what was on that list. I'm pretty confident that uh, Pastor John perfectly fulfills that list in case he checks in about that with any of you later on. <laughs> he meets the list. But there was a lot of that kind of list making at the time. And uh, there was one man in, in particular that I remember. He was part of our worship team. And uh, he was an older, older than me, of an older generation than me. But he had, he was one of those very meticulous, very structured, uh, highly compliant, detailed kind of personalities. Not, not flexible in any way, shape, or form. Who had to have everything like just so in his life. I don't know if you know anybody like that. But he was like that. He played the guitar. We'll call him Matt. And uh, Matt had a long list of what he wanted in a wife, what he wanted to have. And it was like the ideal, the ideal, ideal, perfect woman. He's probably about, oh, I don't know, 45 or 50 years old, which just seems very young right now. But at the time, it was like ancient, basically. And um, he got interested in a friend of mine. Uh, we'll call her Emma, and she's like one of those just great, really sweet, funny, kind, outgoing, beautiful. She was in nursing school, came from a wealthy family, godly family. She was just gentle, good, strong, great girl. And he decided she was the one. But there was about a 25-year age gap between the two of them. And in this culture in particular, that's like a 
Yeah, but it's not going to, probably not going to happen. And she was way out of his league. But he had this standard that was like up to here. And so I remember, I remember him struggling, you know, just trying to find someone that just, you know, it's got to be her. She's the one who fits that standard. It's just, it's got to be up here. There were definitely other women who would have been with him, but because his standard was so high, no one could ever measure up, which is actually kind of sad. I think he's, I think he's still single to this day because no one could, no one could ever achieve this, this standard. I don't know if you met anyone like that who had so many requirements. No one is ever going to be good enough for them. No one's ever going to be enough to commit to. Well, I want to talk about the book of Galatians today and look at some of the things that were happening in the early church. Uh, Some of the high standards that were happening in the beginning of the development of Christianity And so what had happened, this all started with the Jewish people, right? Jesus was a Jew. The movement started among Jewish people. But then Peter got this revelation that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, otherwise known as the non-Jews, everyone else. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, went with Barnabas and several of the other early church leaders, and they started doing these missionary journeys outside of the region of Judah into Europe and Asia Minor, all kinds of places. And so Gentiles started becoming Christians. They started coming to faith in, in Jesus. And so what was happening is as this ha- as the Gentiles started coming into these originally Jewish Christian gatherings, there was a clash of cultures that happened at the time. And so there were Jews who had become Christians who were Pharisees or teachers of the law, experts in Jewish law. And so they were telling these new Gentile Christians, if you want to be a Christian, you got to follow all these rules. You have to learn all of the law. You have to obey the law. And this all kind of came to a head in conflict in the early church, particularly around the issue of circumcision. And all of these Pharisee Christians were saying, you must be, you must be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And so you had all these adult men who were understandably reluctant to go get circumcised in order to become a Jesus follower. I mean, can you just imagine like if that's what we did at an altar call, it was like, come to Jesus, come here and say yes. And now we're going to lead you into the back room and circumcise you. (laughs) That's pretty intense, right? Pretty intense. So there were also all kinds of laws about just food purity, the way that you could eat, who you could eat with, where you could eat, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, all these detailed things. And the Jews had grown up with this, so they're very familiar with it, very you know, comfortable with the idea. But the Gentiles, this is like learning a foreign language for them. Uh, it, there was like is impossible, impossible standard. And so what had happened, there had kind of been this two-tier system where you had Jews who were like the elite Christians, like the super Christians, and then you had Gentiles who were kind of like the try-hard Christians, like the maybe you'll get it someday Christians. They were teaching these Christians that they had to follow Moses' law. So here's how, I want you to think about what this law is. What, is. what is the law of Moses? And I think one way to think about this, I don't know how many of you this morning, when you got up, before you came to church, you looked in a mirror for at least five seconds, at least, maybe longer. Nobody's honest. Yes, a couple hands, right? 
I spent a long time in front of the mirror. Like when I wake up in the morning, my hair is crazy. Like I have super crazy hair. It takes a long time to wrangle this into something. And I, I don't, I don't know that it's like, it's not great right now, but it's, let me, let me just tell you, it's way better than it was. Right. So when I look in the mirror, it tells me that I need to get some work done on it. It'd be so nice if my mirror was like my zoom filter, you know, when I try my zoom filter and it just kind of like tidies you up, just makes you look a little bit nice. I mean, you guys like, you, you have a work from home day and you just kind of, okay, no makeup, just turn on the zoom filter. Everything's going to be, everything's going to be good. Or some of those social media filters, they just make you look great. Be perfect. If the mirror did that, you just look in the mirror and then bink, all of a sudden everything just looks so much better. It just fixes you. But that's not what the mirror does. All it does is tell us how much of a mess we look like and how much work we have to try to make it better. Maybe the older you get, the less you look in it. Sometimes that's what happens. But that's what the law is like. The law is never going to fix you by looking at it. It's a mirror that tells you the places that you're broken. When you look at the law, all it's going to do is just continue to enlighten you about all the ways that you are a mess. All the ways that you need to (laughs) fix yourself. The law is also, it's kind of like a honeydew list. So I don't know how many of you are married in this place. I am married to my husband, Pastor John, and it is the law of wives and husbands that wives make to-do lists for their husbands. These lists are called honeydew lists, right? And so how many wives have a list of things that you want your husband to do right now? Um, and if, if you, yes, yes, this is the way, the way that this is. So I don't give it all to my husband in one shot because that would be overwhelming. So I usually keep pastor John's list right around like maybe three items, something like that. But as soon as something gets checked off the list, then another thing slides into the list. So this list never goes away. It's not like, you know, after we'll be married 18 years this year, after 18 years, this list is just continually like things are getting checked off and added to it. It's never going to, it's never going to end. It's not, it's not ever going to be like where he can get to one day and he's like, okay, I can sit down, watch the news, paint on my iPad and know that I have accomplished everything that Anna wants me to accomplish. It's never going to happen. That's what this works. That's what the nature of the honeydew list. But that's what the law was like. It was this, this list of things that as soon as you thought you had something down, man, you're going to find out that there's a couple more things that you didn't know about that you have not been doing and now you need to do. Now you need to figure it out. When we think about the law, most of the time, the first thing that pops in your head, probably the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments are ten great standards for ethics for us, right? They're fairly simple to think about. But the Jewish law was actually a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. So the first part of the Jewish law was called the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the Torah, and I don't know if you've ever tried to read that. Uh, I think a lot of times when people are make a big decision, they're like, okay, this is it. I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to read the whole thing. That's what I'm going to do. You start in Genesis, and you're like, oh, there's a lot of good stories here. This is pretty interesting. Then you get through in Exodus. There's a great story right at the beginning of Exodus. You get through it. You get about halfway through Exodus, and then it starts bogging down right at the Mount, Mount Sinai. And then all of a sudden, there's like, all these really obscure rules that don't seem to have anything to do with anything. And then you hit 
a genealogy, and then it's like, oh. And then the momentum kind of fades out, and so maybe somewhere in Leviticus, the, the whole project gets abandoned. That's pretty typical of what happens. If you've ever been in there, it's just, it's just endless lists of things to do. But you know, that wasn't it. That's not the only thing that they were talking about when they're talking about Jewish law at this point. So what had happened, you have Old Testament written, and then you have the New Testament in the Bible written. Then in between the two Testaments, there's about a 500 period, a 500 year period of time, which is sort of the time of silence where there was no prophets who were prophesying, uh, where there was no evidence of God. And so there's no books in that time period. During that time, the the, pe- the Judeans, the people in Israel, had had been conquered by Assyrians. They'd been conquered by uh, Babylonians. There were there were a series of, uh, of of things that had pulled them apart as a people group, and now they were subjugated people in that time. Now, during that Babylonian captivity, what they did, the, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, they started looking at what they had in the Torah, and started writing about it, started thinking about it, started interpreting that law and they wrote that down expanded created new stuff and so they wrote what's called the talmud the talmud is a body of work that still exists today you can buy it on amazon it's kind of expensive the reason it's expensive is that it is 73 books long 73 volumes in the talmud so you've got Ten Commandments, you got the Torah, first five books of the Bible. Then you have 73 books that you need to learn and know and apply and do. You can imagine how overwhelming that must have been to the Gentile Christians. So many complicated rules and interpretations of rules to follow. It was just all new, all new. So when we look in the Bible, you can look at Acts chapter 15, and it kind of gives you an insight into this moment of what was happening, this, this conflict, this tension point. Because you had the Pharisee Christians who were saying, this is what you got to do, starting with circumcision, then all these rules. And then you had people like Paul and Barnabas and Peter who were saying, hey, there's something new happening. There's a new way that God is interacting with people and the rules here don't matter like they used to. And so in the middle of all these conversations and conflicts, the, the, the leaders of the early church all got together and said, okay, we got to figure this out. So Paul and Barnabas came off the mission field, came back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of like home base. It's where the church started. It's where the core leaders were. James and Peter were there in Jerusalem. So they all came back together into, in Jerusalem. Paul and Silas came, these Pharisee teachers of the law, and they said, we got to have this big council. We have to figure this out. And so the, the, the Pharisee Christians stand up and make their argument. You know, these new Gentiles, they need to, they need to basically become Jewish in order to become Christians. And so this debate, you can imagine, uh, uh, Paul's and Peter are both pretty hot-headed. So there's some, there's some debate that was going back and forth. Peter stands up and, and tells them, hey, you know what? God, God made a new way for us to come to him. We're saved by grace. Reminds everyone of this. And this stirs up more debate. And then finally, James, who was the pastor of that church in Jerusalem, stood up and said, okay, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. We're going to resolve this issue. No circumcision. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised anymore. 
And all the Gentile men in the room took a big sigh of relief, along with a lot of people around the world. This is no longer a requirement for becoming a Christian. You know, my, my pastor over the last couple of decades, uh, who I served under, he, he came out of a Pentecostal holiness denomination. I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that tradition, but in that tradition, you, you know, you read the Bible, you love the Bible, but there's also a lot of extra rules that aren't necessarily based or even connected to the Bible in any way, shape, or form. So they had all these extra rules that you had to do in order to be Christian. So they had rules like, you know, neither men nor women, you can't wear shorts, you can't wear short sleeve shirts. So if they went on vacation, you know, you go to the lake, go bring your boat, they'd be out there water skiing in jeans and like a full on long sleeve collared button up shirt. That's like, that's what you had to do. You know, there was no watching sports, no participating in sports, no long hair for men, no short hair for women, no pants for women, don't drink this, don't eat that, don't celebrate that holiday, don't participate in this. A whole lot of no, a whole lot of don't that was involved in that. And uh, as I said, it's, it's really none of it based in scripture, just based in tradition. This is acknowledged. Someone's idea of what seemed right to them. I wonder why we get so stuck in religious rules sometimes, the appearances, you know, the length of a skirt or religious furniture. You know, when we get stuck in these rules, we are never religious enough. You know, someone's always going to come up with another rule. Well, in my culture, they're this. This is important. Well, in my culture, they're this. And you're not measuring up to this. There's always a higher standard that seems to push us away from Christians, seems to push us away from God. And Paul was so frustrated by this in the early church. And he wrote to the Galatians who were, you know, trying to be compliant with all of this. These Galatian Gentile Christians. And he was passionately annoyed. And some of the strongest language in the Bible comes from the Apostle Paul in his letters in the early church. You know, he'd come to them and establish the gospel. But then when he went and continued on his missionary journeys, these teachers of the law came in behind to help nurture this new church, these churches in the region. And he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that's pretty strong, isn't it? Like, how would, how, how would you feel if I came up and was like, Word of life, you foolish Christians, how dare you? Who has bewitched you? I don't know, it's not very pastoral, is it? And then again in Galatians 5, he said, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And he's telling the Galatians by saying, by accepting this, this system of rules, that you are subjecting yourself to slavery. 
Now, the, the Galatian people, this was uh, parts of Europe, and they, they were a, a subjected people. So as the Roman Empire expanded, they encountered all kinds of different little ethnic groups, and they had sort of been grouped together as these barbarians, and they lost. You know, they, they, they fought for their independence, but they lost it. So they had become a conquered people, and what that amounted to in many ways was a, was a slavery. And they had, through being peaceful and compliant under you know, years of Roman rule, had earned some degree of freedom inside the Roman Empire. And so he said, you know what it's like to be enslaved. You know what it's like to be a conquered people. Why would you sign up for this again? Why would you sign up for spiritual oppression Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, he said, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Simple as that. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by works of the flesh? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? I want to give you about six thoughts this morning. Reflections on how we come to God. This first one, if you're taking notes, so we can't make ourselves worthy before God through following Christian rules. We can't make ourselves worthy. We don't. We can't do it. Any worthiness that we have before God, any righteousness that we have before God, is entirely based on the work of Jesus. Entirely based on what he did on our behalf when he came incarnate, went to the cross, was raised again. It's not accessed by rule following. We don't rule follow our way into it. We access it by faith. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Paul said, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And in verse 21, he said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He's saying, what's the point? If you're going to go back to rule following and all of the Talmud, all of the Torah, all of the trying to to live up to all of this, he said, then why would Jesus have had to come? Why would Jesus have had to die? There's no point without, without that. The cross was there because it could not work for us. You know, Jesus had very similar thoughts about it. He challenged the Pharisees. He challenged the, the religious leaders of the Jews in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, about the rules that they put on themselves and the rules that they put on other people. He said in the NLT, it says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? What sorrow? Hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. That's such a vivid metaphor that Jesus used there. Can you imagine if every day you ate off the same dishes, which you do, that's what I do, unless you use paper all the time, but if you ate, if I ate off those dishes every single day and just cleaned like the bottom of the plate or the outside of the cup and just left whatever food remains was in there, didn't clean the inside, and then just kept filling it with new food and new drink every day and eating out of that, that's pretty disgusting, isn't it? 
That's, that's, what he's, that's what he's equating it to. I mean, that's going to make you sick pretty fast if you make a habit of just cleaning the outside. It's so pointless, isn't it? It's such a, it's such a, that's the part that stays clean, the outside. See, careful exactness about the external things didn't help the Pharisees. They were trying so hard to keep all of the appearances, everything that it looked like, just right. But what they needed to look at was the heart, was the inner workings. You know, none of our rule following, this is my second thought if you're taking notes, none of our rule following impresses God or gets us closer to him. None of it. The Bible says that our very best efforts, like the best we can do when we're living our best life, it's disgusting when compared to God's perfection. That's the comparison. It like We think, oh, that's great. I'm doing really good. This is good things. I'm good. But when you compare it to God's perfection, the Bible tells us that it just is literally is just revolting. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 talks about this. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away says our very best is like filthy rags. It's pretty vivid, isn't it? Well, that, that Hebrew word that's translated filthy rags is idah, is that word. And it literally means they've, they've kind of sanitized this, I think, just make this a little bit more palatable to you. But it literally means dirty menstrual rags. That's what that means. Like your monthly cycle, that's what, that's what that's talking about there. Our very best, when compared to God's righteousness, is like dirty menstrual rags. And it wasn't just like messy dirty. It was shameful messy dirty. It was like people don't want to touch it. They don't want to get it on the ick on them because it might taint them too. That's what he's talking about here. You know, our good deeds, are they're just riddled with our own selfishness, with pride, with how we want people to see us, envy, as we perform for people, as we virtue signal, hey, check out my recycling on social media because I'm taking care of the planet so well. And we do all these things to perform. Check me out. Look at me in my Jesus vest. And Paul told the Philippians, he said, if there's anybody who could argue that they were righteous by the standards of the law, it's me. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like, you don't get more Jewish than I am. Like, man, I, I did it all. Circumcised from the very beginning. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee before, before, he was, uh, before he was a follower of Jesus. As for zeal, persecuting the church. He said, I was so good at following the law, following the rules. I was so passionate about it that I was actually like going after the church, killing Christians. I mean, you don't get more rule following than that. For righteousness based on the law, faultless. Said I was great at following all those rules. I knew the rules. I'd studied. I'd gave my life to learning the rules. And I was good at it. Verse 7. But he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul's like, all right, I did all these things. You want, you want someone who meets this standard? I met the standard pretty, pretty well. He said, but now what I understand is that all of that was actually compared to what the righteousness that I, I get through through faith in Jesus. He said, it's nothing. It's, he said, it's, it's a loss. It's actually is garbage. And again, here, this work, this, this word garbage is translated in English. Garbage is the Greek word skubala. That Greek word skubala. If you translate it literally, it means dung, poopy. It means excrement is what he's talking about. And there's actually, there's a lot of scholars who believe this is like the four letter word. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, all of that good things that were great for me then, all that is poop compared to the kind of righteousness that I get through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. You know, here's the message. Following a set of rules isn't going to make me righteous. Following a set of rules isn't going to impress God. People might be impressed by it, but God isn't impressed by it. You know, I, I think, why do we put this on ourselves? I don't know, some of it's probably just what's comfortable, what's familiar. You know, the Jewish people is what they grew up in, is what they knew. And, and we do that too. Like there's things that are just, this is what's, what feels right. This is what our culture says is right. But, but when we start saying, this is what makes me holy, this is what makes me better, you start internalizing it and say, well, at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm not doing that stuff. That, be, that comes to a place of pride, spiritual pride in ourselves that somehow my my actions have made me righteous. My actions have made me better. That somehow I have something to do with my own righteousness. It's just wrong thinking. See, what God actually is impressed by, and this is number three, God is impressed by our faith. This is what gives us a place as sons and daughters of God. Doesn't matter how well we follow the rules, that isn't what gives us place in God's family. Galatians 3, verse 11, Paul said, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. See, what matters to God is faith. Faith alone is what makes us a son or a daughter of God. Faith is what accesses the grace of God, the gift of God that we don't deserve. And what is this faith that God asks for? Hebrews 11 tells us in chapter 1, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we don't see. It's that inner resolve. In verse 6 he said, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, there's this connection between the belief, the simple trust that Jesus is who he says he is and our approach to him, that we constantly are going to him and that we come to him, that we earnestly seek him, trust that he wants us to come to him. That's what pleases God, that kind of faith. Is number four, we have access to God because of our relationship as his child. Not because of our behavior, but because of our relationship with him. Our access doesn't come from rule following. Our access comes from our position in his family. 
from our position as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 3 verse 26, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, so what Paul's saying, he's saying all those things that you've been using to create status for yourself, like how good are you at following the rules or how bad are you at following the rules, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, you're one in Christ Jesus. Both of you, all you are, you are a son, you are a daughter of God. That's what you are. He said whether you're rich or at the very top of society or whether you're a slave at the very bottom of society powerless in Christ you have all the status in the world because you are a son you are a daughter of Christ whether you're a man and you're circumcised or not whether you're a woman and you can't be circumcised you are one a daughter of God a daughter of God he said if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that's right. That's worth clapping for. We are heirs of the promise. <clears throat> because you are his sons and daughters, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. That word Abba, it's an Aramaic word. It, it's an intimate word for father. It's like, a, it's like saying daddy. It's a, it's a word that, that implies that close connection. See, we can't earn higher status with God. <laughs> we already have it. He, he doesn't let us come closer because we follow the rules. He lets us come close because we've been adopted as his children. It doesn't matter who we are. Doesn't matter what your background is, where you're from. Doesn't matter how long you've been in this as Christians, how new you are. We're all one in Christ Jesus. <laughs> we all have we all have this status. You know, my kids have an access to me, an access to my home that not everyone gets, right? My daughter has a key to our house. So when they come to my house, I don't have to knock on the door, ring the doorbell, wait for us to open the door for them. They just, they just can come in. You know, if they need to use something in the house, if they want something to eat, they don't have to ask permission to go get something out of the fridge. They just go get it. They just, they have access because they're our kids. They have access. And it's the same way with God. We have access to his presence to what he has because we are his kids. We're heirs to everything that he has is ours because we're his kids. That's the way this works. See, God doesn't love us any more or any less because we follow the rules. He just loves us because we're his kids. Romans 8, verse 1, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
no condemnation. Some of you need to get that in your spirit today. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, God isn't raising his eyebrows at you. He's not shaking a finger in your face. He's not shaking his head at you disapprovingly. There is no condemnation. He's not disappointed in you. He's not angry at you. He's not yelling at you. There is no condemnation. And you know, it just gets better. In verse 33 of Romans 8, Paul said, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. See, the only one who actually could judge us, the only one who could be disapproving us, who came and lived the perfect human life, who set that standard, met all those benchmarks, is Jesus. And it says he's not standing up there condemning us. He's not standing up there in judgment. He's actually advocating for us to the Father. He stands up there with grace, with compassion, with love, with with mercy, with forgiveness for us. That's what he's doing for us. He's there to help. He's there to be there for us. He loves us. He just wants us to come. And when Brooke was, uh, when she was little, she was probably about nine years old. Uh, this is years ago when we were living in Chicago. I was a worship pastor, and Pastor John was traveling full-time. He was gone somewhere preaching on a Sunday. We used to, I had to get her up and get her off to church, and we had three Sunday morning services, and it was full-on. You know, I was basically leading worship the whole time through that. So we'd send her off to kids' ministry, and I wouldn't see her for like seven hours and then look for her at the end of service to get her home and get her fed. So come to the end of the day, and she's nowhere to be found. Nobody knows where she is. And you can imagine my panic at that point starts to set in. Like, where is she? Nobody knew. It took probably at least an hour, maybe, maybe two, to finally get information back and track down. Someone figured out that she had gotten in the car and gone with a group of teenagers to go get lunch after church. Hadn't told anybody, hadn't asked anybody, just went. And so these teenagers dropped her off at home, you know, a couple hours after church ended. And I'm just like, you know, pacing the floor, just just panicking. And as soon as she cracked open the door, she could just see she could see my concern and her little face just crumpled and she burst into tears. She knew she she hadn't done the right thing. And she just was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she just ran and just wrapped her little arms around my legs and just I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, you know, I, I, I hugged her. I was like, man, I was so scared. And I wasn't angry at her. I wasn't frustrated at her. She wasn't in trouble. I just was so glad that she came home. I just wanted her to come home. I knew that's God's heart towards us. You know, we get off on our own thing, lost doing our own thing. He just wants us to come home. He's just concerned about us. He's concerned for us because he loves us. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And you know what? There were times in the early church, there's times for you today where it feels like God is a long way off. Whether it feels like you ran off or whether it feels like God ran off. It can feel like that. But he said... 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in our Lord Jesus. Man, there's nothing that can separate you. Doesn't matter how far you wander off. It doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what you feel. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's no power in hell that can snatch you away. Man, there is, there's no force on earth that can pull you away from his love. He will always keep loving us no matter what, because we are his children. And number six, God invites us to come. He just says, come to me. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He says, just come. You know, we always have the heart and the attention of God. But he gets excited when he sees our faith, when he sees a life that's fully surrendered. That makes him excited. As we spend time with God, Galatians 5 says that we, we bear fruit as a result of that time that we spend. There's an inward change that happens as we spend time with him. We become like him. But it changes who we are before it changes what we do. We don't act differently by following a code of rules. We are different. And so because we, we are different, we choose different things. Behave differently. But behavioral change is the result of faith. It's not the origin of faith. It's not even the target of faith. It's the results, the byproduct that we bear fruit in our life. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we spend time with Jesus, we reflect who he is. You know, the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, they actually give us insight about who God is. If we reflect God back and we bear this kind of fruit, this is who God is. God is loving. God is joyful. God is peaceful. God is patient. God is gentle. God is good. God is kind. God is self-controlled. God is faithful. This is who he is. And so when we spend time with him, that's who we become too. We start to be who he is and we start to want what he wants. We start to desire the things that God wants. Psalm 37, 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you could read that and he'll give you the things that you want, that you want. But it says he will give you he will give you the desires. He changes your desires. He gives you new desires when you take delight in him. God wants us to come to him in prayer. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to be with him. You know, prayer is good for our spirits, but it's also good for our mental health. It's good for our bodies. 
It's pretty interesting to me to look at some of the secular studies that they've done into the effects of prayer on human beings. Psychologists have studied this. When we pray, prayer produces calm. It reduces our stress levels in our body, brings encouragement. It makes us feel like we're not alone. It lowers the rate of depression and anxiety, especially when we pray in groups for each other. It's interesting to me, praying in groups has even more impact on us than praying alone. So I praying in environments like this morning when you came together and prayed as a group for the, the things that we prayed for this morning is so important. You know, prayer makes us more resilient under pain. Like your pain tolerance goes up. I, it's crazy to me the way they measured this. They, they made people who were praying stick their hand in ice water. And people who were praying could keep their hand in water for longer. It makes us more pain tolerant, literally more pain tolerant. It, has the, it produces the opposite as the flight or flight, the fight or flight response in us, that, that uh, stress response. It dissolves that away from us. Prayer does. You know, this, the, they compared this to the secular practice of meditation. And meditation has some benefits, but the benefits of meditation are far outweighed by the, the benefits of prayer. It doesn't do the same thing. Prayer is far and away a superior way to achieve these things. They did some longitudinal studies into the impact of prayer long-term in people's life. And they studied people with chronic illness, and they found that for people who prayed every day with chronic illness, after six years, they were one and a half to, uh, to almost two times more likely to still be alive than the people who did not pray. Isn't that amazing? Prayer actually increased their lifespan. They lived longer because they prayed. See, prayer is good for our mental health, but it's also good for our physical body. There's something about it that has profound impact on us. We're designed for this kind of intimacy with God. We're meant for it. It nourishes us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know we have what he has asked of us. I got so faithful. And when we ask according to his will, when we've been spending time with him and he's put his desires in our heart, we can trust that he's going to do it. The prayers are not just transactions with God. They're not just deals with God. God doesn't make deals like if you do this, God, then I'll stop drinking. Or God, if you just will do this, then I won't do that anymore. I'll stop watching this. That's not the way this works. God wants to be more than just our wish list. God doesn't want to be a last resort or the Hail Mary football pass when nothing else is possible. Just the last resort. He doesn't want to be a religious to-do item, another rule to follow. He's not some genie in a lamp that we rub to get our three wishes. He's not some kind of supernatural ATM. We can't control God. You know, the great theologian C.S. Lewis wrote a series of novels that were actually allegorical novels got made into movies that are popular today. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably a lot of you know this, but it's actually it's an allegory of our life in Christ. 
And in that story, there's four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who find a a wardrobe that has a portal to another realm called Narnia. And when they go through this realm, they find that this realm is ruled by a king named Aslan, but that Aslan has been missing for some time. He's nowhere to be found, and evil is reigning in that land. And so as the children come in and learn about this, the rumor is that Aslan is on the move. And they meet Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver, who assure them that soon Aslan is going to come and make everything right. And Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Jesus isn't tame. He's in our pet in our handbag. He's not a security blanket for us to carry through life. You never know what God's going to do. He's not tame. He's not safe. But he is good. Man, it's an incredible adventure with God. How's he going to move? What's he going to do? How's he going to show up? It's exciting. It's not boring. He says, pray about everything. What excites you? God wants to hear about it. What weighs you down? He wants to hear about it. He wants to lift that. What are you hoping for? He wants to hear about it. He wants to be more than an obligation or a to-do list item. He's not another responsibility, another weight to carry. He wants to lift your weights. He's not another outlay of energy. He wants to replenish your energy. God is not a drain on your life. He wants to nourish your life. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that peace that comes in of knowing, okay, I've given this to God and I can trust him with it. Whatever it is. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Prayers of adoration. Now when we're just thanking God, when we see Him move, and we say, God, I recognize you in it. There was no way that that was going to happen, but you made a way. I recognize that, and I love you for it. I see your goodness and your faithfulness to me. And we lift up a heart full of adoration. Prayers of confession and repentance. When we know we've gone our own way, when we've been distracted, when we've been impacted, patient. God, when we haven't reflected your image well, when we've done things that we shouldn't, when we've been caught up in addiction, we say, God, make me clean again. Make me different. Make me more like you. Prayers of petition when we need God to come through, when we need him to give us a home, when we need him to give us provision, when we need him to rescue the people that we love. Prayers of intercession for other people. This is all kinds of prayers and God wants it all from us. He said, Jesus said in John chapter 5, 15 and verse 4, he said, remain in me as I also remain in you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Remain, abide, 
Stay right there in his presence. Stay right there with an awareness of who he is. See, God wants us to be persistent in our prayer. You know, if you don't get an answer right away, just keep asking. That's what he wants us to do. Just keep asking. Don't get disappointed and think, well, I guess he didn't care about that one. Keep asking. Luke 11, the, the Jesus' disciples asked him, said, teach us about prayer, Jesus. Teach us how to do this. And, and he gave a lot of instruction. He said in verse 9, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open." Which of you, if your fathers ask, if which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He said, "I just want you to keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, man, because the, the heavenly Father, you know, if we love to give good things to our kids, how much more?" Does our perfect Heavenly Father love to answer those prayers? Keep asking. You know, God made all kinds of commitments to us when we committed our life to Him. And we can trust Him to fulfill those commitments. We can keep God accountable for the things that He's committed to us. We can rely on Him to fulfill those things in our lives. He wants to walk with us through it all. Psalm 18 verse 12 says he's a savior when we need rescuing. When he's a refuge when life gets overwhelming. Hebrews 2 11 says that Jesus is family. He's a, he's a brother. He's a sister to us. He's a friend when we need companionship. Psalm 68 5 says he's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. When, you, when you're alone, you're not alone. He's a provider. He's a protector. He's a defender. He's a love giver. He's a support. He's a shelter. He's a counselor when we need wisdom. Hebrews 13, 6, 6 says he's our helper when we're afraid. He's right there. He's right there. He is right there when we need us. Don't think he's too busy. Or I shouldn't bother him. Or this is too small. Or this is too big. He wants us to rely on him. He's waiting for us to come. Matthew 11 and verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Don't be weighed down by all those things that you feel like you have to do for God. He says, come to me. Just come to me. And some of you felt really unworthy to come. Maybe you feel like, you know, you haven't done all the Christian rules just right. Maybe there's things that nobody knows about. Maybe things people do know about. And you felt like, eh, I'm not that holy. I need someone else to maybe pray for You've been trying to jump higher and higher to achieve some standard, and gravity pulls you down every time. You can never pray enough hours, know your Bible well enough. You can't earn God's love because you already have it. God doesn't want us to settle for some, like, Christian half-life where there's 
a Christian facade where we're Christian on the outside, but we're struggling inside. My grandson, our grandson Marcus, he's three. And uh, we've been potty training him for the last couple of months. He's in that very fun season of potty training, which is a journey, let me tell you. <laughs> Trying to get him to poop on the toilet. It's a submission. <laughs> but uh, a couple weeks ago, we bought him some new Paw Patrol underwear. And if you're around three-year-olds, you know Paw Patrol is a big deal. He was so excited about this underwear. This big boy underwear that he was wearing. So proud of it. Showed it to everyone. Look at my Paw Patrol underwear. My big boy pants. And that day, uh, he had an accident. And uh, couldn't find him. Went looking for him. I found him in a closet. Hiding in a closet. I looked down at him. I'm like, what are you doing in here? He looked up at me, and I could just... You know, see the shame in his eyes, embarrassment in his eyes. He didn't say anything for a minute. I looked down, and I could see what had happened. You know, he's messed himself. And he looked up at me, and he said, I'm afraid. I'm scared. I said, why, why are you scared, buddy? You're not in trouble. It's okay. Let's just get you cleaned up. Come on out of here. You don't have to hide. Nobody's mad at you. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I felt as I was preparing for this morning, I felt like there's some of you here today, and you had a father who was really harsh with you, very high standards, and you never felt good enough, never felt like you measured up, never felt the affection in that relationship, just distance. It's been hard for you to conceive of God as that kind of father in your life. God's reaching for you this morning. He wants to give you a new idea of who he is in your life. And those moments when you feel like, there it is again, I messed up again. I wanted to be just right. Maybe hiding from God, maybe ashamed. He's right there with his arms open, saying, It's okay. No one's mad at you. Nobody's shaming you. Let's just get you cleaned up. It's okay. I'm here for you. You're not in trouble. This morning, I believe God wants us to just rest in his unconditional love for you. It's not based on how well you do just based on the fact that his grace has made a way for you to be his child. No striving, just freedom, receiving his grace. You know, sometimes it's hard to receive that. It's humbling because it means that we admit my best efforts are not great. That's humbling but it lifts the weight off of you. The weight of never quite good enough. Let's just come to Jesus. Would you stand this morning?